Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, somebody, somebody in authority really missed the point. Not that that's unusual, but I think it's true on a large scale right now. You surely remember the phenomenon, if not having seen the movie itself, of uh, a, fil- a film, comedy film called Groundhog Day with Bill Mur- Murray. And um, the idea of it, of course, was that every day was the same. You woke up and it was you just went through this cycle, this ever familiar and overly familiar and ever more familiar cycle of this day. But it was the same day. It was irritating, but it was reliable. We're living through kind of a a distended and distorted version of Groundhog Day right now with uh, old Mr. COVID. The problem in the writer's room is that they didn't get the memo that it's it's always supposed to be the same. Instead, what we're getting is the repetition with just enough variety to add a spicy dash of confusion. And therein lies our present, and from what they're saying, our near future. Um, While we're wrestling with Delta, scientists are saying Lambda and Kappa are coming up uh, behind. Watch for Lambda and Kappa. And, eventually, Zeta. Not Jones, just Zeta. So, um, what can we do about it? Uh, I have great respect, as I'm sure you do, for Dr. Anthony Fauci. But maybe just for increased public acceptance and understanding, he needs to be replaced by, oh, I don't know, Bill Murray? Hello, welcome to the show.
Kids, ask your parents what a railroad train was. Hello from the home of the houseless, unhoused thing. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, of course, News of the Olympic Movement, produced by Jim Ebersol III. Who benefits for the Olympics? The royalties go to John Williams. With coronavirus infection numbers rising to record highs across Japan. Good timing. A government health advisor has admitted the state of emergency imposed on July 12th failed to have the impact anticipated. This is from the German broadcaster Deutsche Welle. Good Deutsche Welle to you all. Japanese authorities reported 9,500 new COVID cases middle this week, the highest single-day figure reported to date, surpassing the previous record of 7,900 set on January 8th, way back then, when there wasn't even an Olympics. In Tokyo, the total came to 3,177 additional cases. That's a record for the second consecutive day. That was Wednesday. 15,000 deaths in Japan so far. Thursday, the Olympics Organizing Committee confirmed 24 new cases among people who came to Tokyo for the Olympics, including three foreign athletes. We call them guests. Bringing the number of cases linked to the Games to 193. Quote, unfortunately, the state of emergency restrictions have not had the impact that we hoped for. We now expect cases to continue to rise for at least one more week. Why would that be? Unquote. He didn't say the last sentence. I did. Uh, he being Kazuhiro Takeda president of the Japan Association of Infectious Diseases. He continues, our assumption now is we'll see 3,000 or even 4,000 cases a day in Tokyo before this wave peaks. Unquote. The panel had initially expected Japan's fifth wave of the pandemic to reach a high of around 2,000 cases a day in the week before the games opened and then quickly decline. <laughs> Two main factors to blame for the spike in numbers. The Delta strain. More than 70% of the new cases in Tokyo are of this more virulent variety of the disease. The other issue is that people, especially young people, are tired of being unable to go out to bars and restaurants and to see their friends. After a year and a half, they don't want to isolate anymore. They want to go out and enjoy their summer, said Takeda. He adds, Tokyo has seen a spike in cases among people in their 20s and 30s. Isn't that peculiar? Broadcasters aren't taking home any gold medals for the audiences of the game so far. According to Reuters, in several major cities around the world, the TV audience has fallen since 2016. Viewing becomes more fragmented. Athletes compete in Japan when audiences are mostly asleep in the United States and Europe. And they would be even if they weren't watching the Olympics. Ratings data from the opening ceremony in first few nights indicate that Tokyo Games are currently the least watched Olympics in recent history across Europe and the United States. TV viewership is up in Australia and Japan. So if you like small markets, you're in luck. And of course, they're in the proper time zone. 
The opening ceremony last week drew 16.9 million U.S. viewers, the smallest audience for the event in the past 33 years. That audience declined 36% from the last Olympics. U.S. viewership hit a high of 19.4 million on Sunday night, but it's been downhill since then. The chief executive officer of NBC told analysts, we had a little bit of bad luck. There was a drumbeat of negativity. But it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Ladies and gentlemen, the new Iraq. It's the one we were building. Although we weren't nation building, were we? Or were we? Or weren't we? Iraqi historian Abdullah Khorshid Qadr has been working in the field of archaeology since 2000 when he um, started procuring his master's degree at the Salah ad-Din University in Erbil, northern Iraq. went on to become a professor at the University Department of Archaeology as a scholar and the director of the Iraqi Institute for the Conservation of Antiquities and Heritage. He's elated his country is going to get back a bunch of ancient treasures, Iraqi ancient treasures, from the good old USA. How'd they get here? Stuff happens. Freedom is untidy. You know, I'll go all Rumsfeld on your butt. This is from uh, Deutsche Welle as well. Quote, feeling great and hopeful because of the positive responses from the U.S., he said. This week, uh, the United States announced it's returning 17,000 architectural, sorry, archaeological artifacts to Iraq. The object's around 4,000 years old. Is that all? And from the Sumerian period, I guess that's what they called their summertime, they were returned on Thursday on board a flight of the Iraqi Prime Minister back from his meeting with the President of the United States, who is... Let me just check here. Joe Biden. Calling the restitution unprecedented, Iraqi culture minister Hassan Nazim said it was, quoted the largest return of antiquities to Iraq and the re- result of months of efforts by the Iraqi authorities in conjunction with their embassy in Washington. A couple of th- Three years ago, the British government returned ancient objects that were similarly looted. Ah, the word appears. Took a while. Looted after the U.S. invasion and which then appeared presto changeo in England. Stuff happens. Freedom is untidy. Most of these artifacts were part of the materials that were looted, second appearance of the word, from the Iraqi Museum in Baghdad during the U.S. invasion, said Elizabeth Stone, an archaeologist, professor of anthropology at Stony Brook University in New York. Stone has been a part of various archaeological expeditions to Iraq, including one in 2012 when she and her team excavated close to the site of Ur, home of the biblical figure of Abraham, is all. She still has to get to a Martin and John. According to Stone, these objects left Iraq through illegal trade in antiquities. Quote, it was clear to everyone that these had been stolen from the museum since they had catalog numbers on them. Here's your tip right there. And so could not have come from illegal excavations. Unquote. Some objects were confiscated by customs officials. Others were bought by Cornell University and Hobby Lobby, the arts and crafts chain. 
Hobby Lobby was in the news recently for another transaction. The business had acquired a rare tablet in cuneiform script inscribed with a portion of the (laughs) epic of Gilgamesh. The object was brought to display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington. That institution, funded by the family of David Green, who, by the nuttiest of all coincidences, is the founder of Hobby Lobby. This life is just too nutty, isn't it? A couple days ago, a New York court ordered the forfeiture of that object, which is reportedly purchased by an American antiquities dealer from the family of a London coin dealer, according to the Department of Justice. The antiquities dealer and a U.S. cuneiform expert shipped the tablet into the United States by international post without declaring the contents, as required. After the tablet was imported and cleared, experts in cuneiform recognized it as belonging to... uh, a portion of the Gilgamesh epic. The tablet measures approximately 6 by 5 inches and is written in the Akkadian language. The Sumerian poem is considered one of the oldest works of literature, so of course it belongs at the Hobby Lobby. Together with several thousand other objects, comprises one of the largest caches of archaeologically important artifacts that were stolen from Iraq while we were saving it. Hey, if you want a uh, a scrambled egg, you got to break a few eggs. The new Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, followed closely by the story of the war we skedaddled away from, both resource and attention-wise, to have our way with Iraq. America's longest war. President Biden has vowed that the United States will make sure the Afghans, quote, have the capacity to maintain their air force, unquote. Signs have emerged already that the Afghan air force is falling apart. This is from taskandpurpose.com, military website. Sounds like to me. About one-third of the Afghan air force's 160 aircraft can no longer fly. And no, they're not F-35s. They can't fly because they lack spare parts since the U.S. withdrew its contractors from the country. That's according to Afghan lawmaker Haji Ajmal Rahmani. The Afghan Air Force has also run out of laser-guided precision munitions, he said. It's not low, he told the Washington Examiner. It's actually out of stock. The Afghan Air Force has come a a long way over the past two decades. Its fleet was initially limited to Russian-made transport and attack helicopters. In 2010, accusations emerged that Afghan pilots were smuggling opium and weapons, so they were flying. The following year, in the deadliest insider attack of the war, an Afghan Air Force colonel killed nine Americans. The U.S. Air Force also wasted more than $500 million on 20 Italian-made transport aircraft for the Afghans, which became unusable due to problems getting spare parts. The planes were eventually scrapped, sold for about $40,000. There's your taxpayer dollars at work and play. Since then, the Afghan Air Force has become an effective fighting force, currently with 162 aircraft, of which as many as 143 were mission-capable as of March, according to the Special Inspector General for Iraqi Reconstruction. 
U.S. government has also vowed to provide the Afghans with 37 Blackhawk helicopters to supplement the 42 they already have. But the U.S. military has been forced to completely retrain Afghan air crews on how to use Blackhawks. And that has delayed the Air Force's ability to sustain itself, according to the Special Inspector General John Sopko. Moreover, the Afghan Air Force has relied exclusively on contractors to sustain many of its American-made aircraft, including the Blackhawks. When the U.S. withdrew the contractors, it didn't take long for mission-capable rates to plunge. The U.S. military estimates without contractor support, the Afghan Air Force would be unable to keep their aircraft combat-effective beyond a few months, said Sopko. The Taliban never wants to... Um, Miss out on a good thing has also launched a concerted effort to assassinate Afghan pilots, potentially depriving the Kabul government of the one military advantage it does have. With the Afghan Air Force running low on ordnance and desperate for maintenance, someone has to pick up the slack. Right now, that's the U.S. military. The United States has increased airstrikes in support of Afghan forces over the last several days. U.S. military is also prepared to have Afghan aircraft taken to a third country where they can be refurbished and repaired and then returned to the Afghan Air Force. So far, U.S. government officials haven't said publicly where that over-the-horizon maintenance might take place. The remaining American contractors are using Zoom to teach Afghan maintainers how to repair their aircraft. According to a piece recently in Stars and Stripes, Depending on Zoom, eh? I wonder if the Taliban are learning to Zoom bomb. And some 200 Afghans, including interpreters and their families, arrived in the United States Friday as part of a special visa program for those who worked with the U.S. Army during its 20-year fight against the Taliban. We were there for 20 years? And the Air Force is crap? Hmm. The Biden administration has vowed to resettle thousands of Afghans who fear reprisals from the Taliban because of their cooperation with Americans. Taliban hold a grudge, I'll give them that. These arrivals are just the first of many as we work quickly to relocate SIV-eligible Afghans out of harm's way so they can wait in safety while they finish their visa applications, said President Biden. Some 20,000 U.S. interpreters have requested asylum in the U.S. in total. The evacuees who arrived already, 2,500, underwent vigorous background checks and COVID-19 tests. The Afghans will spend the next seven days at Fort Lee in Virginia before leaving to join relatives or host families. U.S. allies are running similar schemes for people who help them, Afghans who help them, like Britain. Since 2008, as many as 70,000 Afghans have moved to the United States. You don't hear political complaints about that immigration. And now, bad news for fans of salmon. He gave it to us. We got it. This persistent heat dome over the West Coast, it's happening right now, will likely result in earlier loss of ability to provide cool water, and subsequently it is possible 
all in-river juveniles will not survive this season. That's the California Department of Fish and Wildlife talking about Chinook, not Chinook, Chinook salmon, California Chinook salmon. The agency explained that the federal government and state's supply of cold water needed to keep water temperatures in the state's largest river habitable for salmon is vanishing quicker than expected. According to Courthouse News Service, this didn't happen in a courthouse, without adequate cold yet, without adequate cold water in Shasta Lake, which is right now down to 33% of capacity. Both the feds and the state warned it couldn't keep the Sacramento River habitable for endangered Chinook salmon. Mm-mm. Salmon eggs and juveniles are typically able to survive California's hot summers thanks to cool temperatures on the river bottom. That's a big... Uh, sorry. But the drought and water deliveries made to farmers already this year have reduced the chances of in-river salmon making it to the ocean. Slim to none. I'd take slim if I were you. Experts predict this could be worse than 2015 when just 3% of winter-run Chinook eggs and fry survived in similar conditions. The state continues to fight the feds in court over rules governing how much water can be taken from the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers. There were new rules established during the Trump administration. But the uh, director of the California Department of Fish and Wildlife told a um, Joint Committee on Fisheries and Agriculture in the California legislature that climate change is also complicating things. Chuck Bonham said that while the Biden administration appears open to discussing a new policy, he's concerned the current drought will do permanent damage to the Chinook and other salmonids. I said salmonids. What worries me greatly, Bonham said, is our species are losing the ability to recover. He fell short of saying he was certain there'd be a complete loss of juvenile salmon this year. Grow up, you guys. But acknowledge the possibility exists as reservoirs continue to run out of supplies used to manage downstream river temperatures. Over the last few months, the state has trucked 17 million salmon from hatcheries directly to the ocean so they don't have to swim over dams or around them. It's moved fish to more suitable hatcheries and rescued wild fish from stagnant river pools. But Bonham acknowledged the emergency actions are not a sound long-term strategy. In the long term, we'll all be there. But in the meantime, we've got Dominion. Confess Behind 
From the home of the unhoused, that doesn't work at all. I'm Harry Shearer, and this is the show. And uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly. A priest in Canada has been banned from delivering sermons after, the, after he claimed that some survivors of sexual abuse had lied in an effort to receive higher sums of money. This whole religion thing in Canada is getting... Interesting. The Archdiocese of St. Boniface in Winnipeg banned Father Real Forrest after he made the controversial remarks during a mass sermon a couple of weeks ago, according to the CBC. Forrest accused survivors of abuse and sexual assault at Canada's historic residential schools for indigenous children of lying in order to receive large financial settlements. If they wanted extra money from the money that was given to them, they had to lie sometimes. Lie that they were abused sexually and, whoop, another $50,000, he said, according to videos posted to the Facebook page of the Saint-Emile Roman Catholic Church. He was temporarily placed at the church while the congregation's regular pastor went on vacation. What a vacation! It's kind of hard if you're poor not to lie, the priest added. Although he did say some of the survivors had experienced bad treatment, he argued this was not always due to fellow priests and nuns. It's a defense. The Archdiocese of St. Boniface, in a statement emailed to Newsweek, there's still Newsweek? Condemned the priest's remarks and asked for forgiveness. The Archdiocese also reiterated that Forrest had been banned and barred from teaching publicly and presenting sermons. That's got to hurt. 
Recognizing the undeniable multifaceted tragic legacy of the Indian residential school system, Archbishop Legat and the Archdiocese completely disavow Father Forrest's comments. We very much take to heart the pain his words have caused to numerous people, not least, of course, indigenous people and more specifically survivors of the residential school system, a.k.a. the liars. No, they didn't say that. As Archbishop of St. Boniface, Bishop Legat asks indigenous people throughout the Archdiocese and beyond, especially the survivors of the residential school as well as their families, for forgiveness for the hurt these unfounded remarks have caused. It may be the apology of the week. But wait, there's more about these uh, residential schools. Now, Now that we're on the topic, the Roman Catholic Church spent millions of dollars that were supposed to go to residential school survivors on lawyers, administration, a private fundraising company, and unapproved loans, according to documents obtained by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The documents include a host of other revelations. They appear to contradict the Catholic Church's public claims about money paid to survivors. Well, who's lying now? There are also a large number of serious accounting discrepancies that are alarming to Canada, states one document, a 53-page government factum. I said factum, summarizing the evidence in a 2015 court matter. I said factum. None of the other churches involved in the landmark Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement of 2005, your Anglican, your United and Presbyterian, engaged in any of these practices. They all paid the full amounts agreed to years ago without incident. The Catholic Church never ended up having to legally justify its activity. On the eve of a hearing in 2005 on the ma- 2015 on the matter, Saskatchewan's Court of Queen's Bench Justice Neil Gabrielson approved the church's controversial buyout proposal, and the case was closed. Advocates for survivors say they're disgusted and that the Catholic Church must be held accountable. Former Saskatchewan Provincial Court judge and the director of a university's residential school history and dialogue center in Vancouver says this is unbelievably, absolutely gross. It's completely wrong. How could anyone do something like this? None of the lawyers involved in the 2015 case could be reached for comment. The Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, the CCCB, declined an interview request. An official noted that the CCCB was not a party to the settlement. Individual dioceses and orders created a corporation to oversee the deal. The official said Canada's bishops, quote, are committed to continue engaging and listening. Hmm? Unquote. She noted the historic delegation traveling this December to the Vatican. That delegation plans to ask the Pope to visit Canada. Well, it's a tourism thing then. Oh, and issue a residential school apology. A call first made several years ago by indigenous leaders, some bishops, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Truth's got to come before reconciliation, you know. The factum, (laughs) it's not a part of the body, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go there. And other documents obtained by the CBC form part of the court record in that case that was closed involving the federal government of Canada and the Catholic Church. The source directly involved in the case verified their authenticity. The opening paragraph of said factum states the Catholic Church was breached in its obligations 
in the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement. And by Indian, they mean First Nations, don't you know? News of the godly. Sometimes more godly than not. And sometimes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, um, apropos of what I was talking about at the, at the top of the show, our return, thanks to our friend the Delta variant, our return to days of yore. We thought we were um, kind of over the nastiest part of the COVID deal, only to discover that uh, old Mr. Delta had a hankering to uh, return to the days of yesteryear. Your masks, your self-isolation. For those both vaccinated and unvaccinated, and uh, it's getting nasty out there, especially among the vaccinated towards the unvaccinated. And um, I guess, I, I guess, since I'm doubly vaccinated, it's uh, okay for me to be amused by what seems to be the dominant dialogue in the media in the last couple of weeks. How do you reach the unvaccinated? How do you convince them? I say you round them all up, hogtie them, and give them a shot. And then keep them in that position for a few hours so they can cool off. Anyway, the, um, the hostility towards masks continues to grow. I'm not wearing mine either right now because I'm not But who are the unmasked? Exactly what kind of people are these?
part of God's plan. Hello, Muslim woman, I'm a Judeo-Christian man. I just finished learning an educated guess. A mask wearer's either Al-Qaeda or IS I love the fresh old wind blowing through those oaks And I'm not running scared cause of no Corona hoax In the bright sunshine of freedom News of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, save, too safe to meet. Safe, save, too safe to meet. Fukushima honey. Words don't seem to go together all that easily, do they? Nor do they in real life. Cesium, cesium, I hardly knew him. Cesium, a radioactive chemical, has been found in honey collected near Fukushima in an amount larger than Japan's national health standard, according to the Korea Times. Well, of course the Korea Times would say that about Japan. No, it raises concerns about food f- safety in and around the city of Fuk. The honey, manufactured by a local, beekeep- local beekeeping cooperative, in a township in Fukushima Prefecture, contained from 130 to 160 becquerels of cesium per kilogram, according to a report from Japan's daily news outlet, Yomiuri Shimbun. Quoted in the Korea Times, that amount exceeded the country's national standard of 100 becquerels by 30 to 60. The radioactive chemical is believed to have originated from the nuclear disaster, which we've all heard about, the town in question is uh, just eight miles north of the disaster site. Cesium from the disaster was believed to have been spread to the township through northwesterly winds. The newspaper said it was the first time that cesium was found in honey from Fook in an amount exceeding the national health standard. The newspaper added at least 1,400 products containing the honey have been sold at train stations and shops since last June. The municipality said they will recall those products because, of course, they haven't been consumed yet. 
That was June. The discovery came after the Japanese Prime Minister and his administration repeatedly assured people that food products from Fook are safe to eat. That's in order to mitigate international concerns, particularly from Korea's national team. Despite the Japanese government's efforts, some of the countries participating in the Olympics decided to supply their national athletes with food cooked with ingredients from their home countries instead of local dishes provided by Japan's Olympic organizers. That's ticked off the Japanese officials. So there's good blood all around. A reactor at a nuclear plant in southern China was shut down for maintenance due to minor fuel damage, the operator said this week, after an increase in radioactivity levels previously sparked fears of a leak. This is according to Agence France Press. Ah, the French. You gotta love them. Chinese authorities last month blamed minor fuel rod damage for a buildup of radioactive gases at the Taishan plant in Guangdong province, describing it as a, quote, common phenomenon, unquote, with no need for concern. Minor fuel rod damage is all. French nuclear firm Framaton, which helps operate the plant, last month reported a, quote, performance issue, which caused the U.S. government to look into the possibility of a leak. Quote, after lengthy conversations between French and Chinese technical personnel, Taishan Nuclear Power Plant decided to shut down Unit 1 for maintenance, said the Chinese organization, adding that a, quote, small amount of fuel damage occurred during, unquote, during the operation of the reactor. The Chinese General Nuclear Power Group said both units of the plant had maintained safe and stable operations throughout. The faulty reactor was, quote, completely under control. Unquote. Engineers would now find the cause of fuel damage and replace the damaged fuel, the statement added. There were more than 60,000 fuel rods in the core unit. The proportion of damaged rods was, quote, less than 0.01%, according to Chinese Environment Ministry and Nuclear Regulator. They called the damage inevitable due to factors including fuel manufacturing and transport. Damage to fuel rods is inevitable because of the way we bang them around, trucking them around. French energy giant EDF, the majority owner of Famatom, also previously blamed the buildup of gases in one of the reactors on the deteriorating of the coating on some uranium fuel rods. Well, that's got to happen. Coating, coating's got to deteriorate. What do you expect? It's coating. Clean, cheap, too safe to coat, our friend the Adam. Now, the apology to the week. We're so sorry. Dayline Lambeth. It's uh, near London. The home of the residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is kind of pertinent to this story. Lambeth Council has made an unreserved apology to the hundreds of victims of sexual abuse and neglect suffered while in its care. Following a damning report by the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, that inquiry found a, quote, culture of cover-up, unquote, led to more than 700 children being abused over five decades. I'm not going to do the math for you. The council accepted the findings, committed to implement three recommendations made by the report. 
On behalf of all elected members and staff, Lambeth Council wishes to restate our sincere and heartfelt apology to all victims and survivors of abuse and neglect while in Lambeth's care, said Councillor Claire Holland. The Council was responsible for their care and protection but failed with profound consequences. The Council is deeply sorry for their experiences. As the report sets out, the Council of the past failed to protect many of its most vulnerable children. A disproportionate number of those children were from black, Asian, and multi-ethnic backgrounds. See, it's not just America. The extent and scale of the horrendous abuse, which took place over many decades, remains deeply shocking. The council failed to acknowledge concerns when they arose, often failed to believe children when they disclosed abuse, and then failed to take effective action. That so many children and adults were not believed compounded their experiences and caused further pain and distress with lifelong impacts. The... uh, Inquiry heard evidence of children being raped, indecently assaulted, and sexually abused, but said that the seven of the 705 complaints made by former residents, only one member of senior staff was ever disciplined. They estimated the number of those abused was likely much higher. Recommend the Metropolitan Police should consider whether there are grounds for a criminal investigation into one boy who died in a care home in 1977, having previously complained of being abused by a senior member of staff. And so we wave goodbye to Lambeth. A group of Halifax-based nuns who operated a residential school in Nova Scotia has apologized for its role at the Institute, refusing to say more about the gesture or whether it's reached out to indigenous survivors. The Sisters of Charity staffed the school for its duration from 1929 to 1967. It was named a National Historic Site in 2020 to mark the discrimination, mistreatment, abuse, and neglect of indigenous children. After being forced to attend the school, survivors have told of widespread physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. This week, the religious order, the Sisters of Charity, posted an apology to its website. Quote, the recovery of the unmarked graves at former Canadian residential schools is a stark reminder of the most vulnerable enslaved in our nations. We hear the cries of hidden children, women, and men, our breath is labored as we begin to understand the harm inflicted on the innocent, said the apology. The letter is signed by the nuns' congregational leadership team. The recovery of these remains, the letter goes on, is heartbreaking and shameful. As human beings and as members of a religious congregation that served at two of these schools, we weep. We're ashamed of the cruelty some people can inflict on others. I wonder who those people would be. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada lists the names of 16 children who died while at the school. Survivors say they believe many more children died. Ground-penetrating radar has been used to search the site as part of the investigation, similar to those that uncovered 215 children's remains in British Columbia. The results of that radar search have not yet been made public, and in the spirit of openness, the Sisters of Charity refused to speak to the CBC News organization about the apology, not responding to a list of questions CBC News sent, including asking if the Sisters of Charity intended to do anything beyond putting the letter on their website. Hey, it's an apology, babe. Candace Cameron Burr has offered a rare apology after some of her followers didn't quite get what she was trying to do in a TikTok video. The Fuller House star lip-synced to a snippet of audio from Lana Del Rey's 
Jealous Girl. The lyrics are, quote, Baby, I'm a gangster too. And it takes two to tango. You don't want to dance with me. Dance with me. Cameron Buer did so while holding a Bible with a caption that read, When they don't know the power of the Holy Spirit. She later took to Instagram to apologize for it. I just came home and read a lot of messages that were not happy with my latest Instagram post that was a TikTok video. And I usually don't apologize for these things, but a lot of you thought it was weird, and I'm sorry. That was not my intention. The devout Christian continued, So many of you thought I was trying to be seductive, which clearly means I'm not a very good actress because I was trying to be strong, not sexy. The 45-year-old actress said she did it after her 22-year-old daughter posted her own version using the same audio clip. It's not the first time she's run afoul of her followers last September, CNN reminds us. She declined to apologize after some of her conservative followers complained about a picture she posted with her husband in which he had his hand on one of her breasts. Hey, she's 45. Deadline, I don't know what that has to do with Deadline Taipei. Taiwan's representative in San Francisco has apologized for claiming to represent the governor of China in a speech before a Taiwan organization. Scott Lai said he had made the mistake while addressing the annual meeting of the Taiwanese Chambers of Commerce of North America. In his speech, he praised the group for promoting diplomacy with two references to China's government, generating heated discussions among the audience. Lai first expressed his thanks to the audience, quote, in the name of the government of China, and then repeated the same phrase when congratulating its new chief executive. In his apology, Lai said he would be careful not to commit the same error again. So many errors in the world to commit. He added that he loves Taiwan and is determined to defend its sovereignty. He explained his mistake and his efforts to set things right to Taiwanese Americans. Israel's Olympic baseball team apologized this week after uploading a TikTok video of players jumping on a bed in the Olympic Village. It was apparently humorously attempting to test the rigidity of the recyclable cardboard beds, supposedly distributed to discourage sex in the Olympic Village. What they did was more and more players bounced on it until it finally gave way. Nine players managed to simultaneously jump as it collapsed slightly. We meant no disrespect and just wanted to show off how effective and sturdy the beds are. In the Olympic Village, said the player who uploaded the original video, Ben Wanger. He explained the team had an extra bed available to them and said it would be recycled. More sorries from the Olympics. Organizers of the Tokyo Olympics this week apologize for ordering too much food for their staff during the opening ceremony and letting it go to waste after videos of trucks carting off boxes of uneaten food went viral online. Hey, viral food! The organizers who faced public opposition to holding the thing in the first place and have been criticized for a series of scandals, came in for fresh lashing for wasting food at the National Stadium. Thousands of untouched lunchboxes and rice balls. Is any other part of the rice edible? Were discarded at the stadium as the decision to hold the games without spectators slashed the numbers of volunteers there. That's according to the Tokyo Broadcasting System. The report was particularly embarrassing for organizers. They've pitched the games as the sustainable games and say on their own webpage that Tokyo 2020 aims to minimize the adverse impact of resource waste, unquote. Spokesperson for Tokyo 2020 said it was true there was a surplus of food during the opening ceremony, but from this week, measures to optimize food orders are being implemented at each of the venues. We regret that a large amount of over-ordering has occurred up till now. 
The spokesperson said the surplus food was not disposed of, but recycled into animal feed and, quote, other uses, unquote. Kyrie Irving had some strong criticism for the latest version of his own shoe line with Nike, highlighting the disconnect that can occur between star athletes and their brands. Quote, I have nothing to do with the design or marketing of the upcoming Kyrie 8, he wrote through his ver- verified Instagram account. Quote, these are trash. I have absolutely nothing to do with them. Nike plans to re- release it without my okay, regardless of what I say, so I apologize in advance. A representative from Nike didn't immediately have a comment. Texas Attorney General apologized this week after receiving backlash for tweeting that Simone Biles, the American gymnast, was a, quote, national embarrassment when she withdrew from the team gymnastics final. Aaron Wrights said she was a selfish, childish national embarrassment. But he posted an apology next day. My comments do not represent the Attorney General or the Office of Attorney General in a moment of frustration and disappointment. I opined on subjects for which I am not adequately versed. That was an error I can't imagine what Simone Biles has gone through. She is a true patriot and one of the greatest gymnasts of all time. I apologize to her and wish her well. Biles has been cheering on her teammates from the sidelines, saying they stepped up when I couldn't. And... Another Olympics apology. Germany's Olympic Federation has sent cycling sports director Patrick Moster home over racist comments during the cycling time trial. He was caught on camera screaming racist remarks as Germany's Nicholas Arndt was chasing down two African cyclists during the event. The cycling coach later apologized for the comments, saying he was caught in the heat of the moment. The uh, Germany Olympic Federation said, although his apology was sincere, he violated Olympic values with the comment. He was uh, yelling as Arndt chased down his opponents, get the camel drivers, multiple times. And Andrew Spencer, fan favorite on The Bachelorette, shared a heartbreaking goodbye with Katie Thurston last week, is apologizing for his past offensive tweets which don't represent who he is today. The tweets which resurfaced on Reddit included fatphobic, that's USA Today's language, racially charged and misogynistic comments from 2014 back through 2011. Maybe teenagers should stick to Snap because those messages disappear real fast. I think it's made for them. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Now, as ever, the copyrighted feature of this very program.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, this this is it. This is the end of this week's edition of the show. There'll be another it next week at the same time on this same radio station and at your time of your choice on your audio device of choice. And it would be just like Bill Murray replacing Dr. Fauci if you'd agree with, join with me then, would you? All righty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. A typical show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast and podcast. The email address for this program, I read them sometimes, all the time. The playlist of the music here, here on in your chance to get cars, I talk t-shirts, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions. originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the place of the unhoused.